0: Hello, my bubbles. Welcome to The Lee Show. Thank you to our new paid subscribers. If you have not yet signed up to be a paid subscriber, go to leebrestler.substack.com or click on the link in the show notes for this podcast. Thank you, of course, for signing up. Thank you for your support. I'm a strong believer in the importance of the public education system. I think it's one of the most important systems that underpins the strength of America. We we have to create an educated population that will go on to work and create and to innovate. And we have to teach children to think critically and independently, to be creative and to work hard. Just as important as the education is the daycare element of it. Freddie DeBoer wrote a great piece about this recently. We have to provide a safe place where children can go during the day, where they're going to be fed and, and kept safe and their their parents can work. It's not just about the reading and writing and math, but that's important too. You know, I read endless complaints about how the Chinese are eating our lunch because they're producing math students that beat our kids in standardized tests. But the Chinese have not figured out how to create an education system that creates critical thinkers. They can do well at rote memorization, but they're not beating us at creativity, at critical thinking. And that's why we in America are out innovating every other country in the world. Now, as adults, we We recognize, we we interact with enough people, we recognize that people have strengths and weaknesses. Some people are intelligent, some are not. Children have these differences too. They have different ability levels. I think we use a, a, a shorthand by saying that some kids are smarter than others, and maybe sometimes that's the case. Maybe it's genetics that's doing it. I don't know. It seems reasonable, but I don't know. I think parenting has a lot to do with it. Reading to your kids, teaching them, encouraging hard work and exercise and kindness. All of these things create better children. There's clearly more to it than just the genes that we inherit from our parents. Better parents have better children. Now, none of this is a guarantee. I had parents who encouraged me to learn. My father taught me a lot, he pushed me to to learn math at a young age. I was a smart kid. I was reading and I was writing and doing multiplication before I even got to kindergarten. Now, I don't think this is always a great thing. I think that precociousness led to my feeling very bored in school. I was already wired that way. Like I was already a behavior case and I was acting up all the time you know, we, we've discussed on this show in the past whether or not I had ADD. I, I don't know. It sure seems like I did. But because I was so academically precocious, it meant that when I was in grade school, I could coast very easily. I didn't need to study very hard. I knew everything already. But that also meant I developed no study habits. I didn't learn how to work hard. It's also, in case you have precocious children, it's worth being aware that when children are advanced in one area, let's say academically, it sort of sets the bar and then people expect them to be advanced in all ways. I was advanced academically, but I was incredibly remedial emotionally and behaviorally. And so I felt like I was constantly disappointing this standard that was set way too high for me. When I got into when I got to fifth grade, I just ran into a wall. I mean, it was it was hard. Suddenly, school was much more rigorous. Suddenly, we were learning things that I didn't already know. I mean, I was a disaster. I didn't do my homework. I didn't study. I, I didn't know how to do these things, and I started getting bad grades. I was an academic disappointment for the first time, and I wasn't used to that. I went to a very rigorous high school and even there I had trouble. I didn't know how to study, how to prepare, how to stay organized. And If you went by my grades, I was a terrible student, but as I was blowing off my homework, I was also reading The Wealth of Nations and Camus and Voltaire and I was teaching myself because I was interested and passionate about learning. I just didn't want to do it in the classroom. When I discovered economics classes, I, I had this incredible teacher. His name was Ted Hartso, and I found, like, I, I had found my true calling. Suddenly, I could excel again in a subject that I really loved. And I, I participated in this national competition. It was called the Fed Challenge. It was one of the most formative experiences of my life. It was a a team of of five students, and we went and made a presentation about what the Federal Reserve should do with interest rates. I was a junior in high school, and the first round of the competition was a a statewide one in Connecticut, and we won that. And then we went on to the regional round at the Boston Federal Reserve, and we won that. And then we went on to the national round in Washington, DC, and we sat in the Federal Reserve Board of Governors room, and we presented to Alan Greenspan what we thought he should do with his job. And suddenly I was excelling again. And I felt like all those people who had been telling me for years that I had so much potential, suddenly I felt like they were right. And I had just found a way to achieve that potential. So children are all unique and they're different and they're different from each other. They have strengths. They have weaknesses. They learn in different ways and they aren't necessarily better or worse people. Although that does come later, right? There are better and worse adults. But children can be measured, and and appreciating that they can be measured requires some objectivity. It requires us to agree that getting a score of 100 on a math test is better than getting a score of 70 on the math test. Now, there can be a lot of different reasons why one child gets a higher score than another. Maybe they study harder, they're smarter, their parents encourage learning at home, maybe they're better nourished. Maybe they have a better teacher, but no matter the reason, I think we can objectively agree that the higher score is the desired outcome. And Disputing this, saying that the 70 is as good as the 100, goes against every bit of logic and reason that we have absorbed. Now, grading or scoring children's performance won't always make them feel good because implicit in that is a sort of ranking, but it's also a way to figure out if our schools are teaching children what they need to know. It's a way of figuring out if the schools are doing a good job and of ranking the schools and the teachers. It allows us to use comparison words like better and worse. But now there's this opposite approach that says that the ranking doesn't matter, that getting a 70 is no better or worse than getting 100. That's confusing. It sounds like nonsense. Now over the past few years, there's an entire industry of hucksters that has cropped up and they teach that the test itself is racist. They teach that giving tests to children is racist and a sign of white supremacy and all kinds of other jargony things that they've coined. And this industry with with leaders like Ibram Kendi and Robin DiAngelo and Glenn Singleton, they host seminars and they write books that claim to teach this new and enlightened way of thinking for school boards, for teachers, for corporate leaders. They teach that the measurement is evil, that if we're going to say that children are all equal to each other, then any kind of measurement is bad because it suddenly disproves what they are saying. And it highlights that children and people are different. Glenn Singleton has a a company called Courageous Conversation, and he goes and gives lectures for $300,000. Now, in the New York Times Magazine, which is as liberal as they get, he wrote a, they wrote a, a piece about Singleton. I'm going to read a, a quote here. Singleton, who holds degrees from the University of Pennsylvania and Stanford and who did stints in advertising and college admissions before founding what's now known as Courageous Conversation in 1992, talks about white culture in similar ways. There is the myth of meritocracy, and valuing, quote, written communication over other forms, he told me, is a hallmark of whiteness, which leads to the denigration of black children in school. Another hallmark is scientific linear thinking, cause and effect. He said, there's this whole group of people who are named the scientists. That's where you get into this whole idea that if it's not codified in scientific thought, that it can't be valid. He spoke about how the ancient Egyptians had ideas about how humanity works that never had that scientific hypothesis construction and so aren't recognized. This is a good way of dismissing people. And this, he continued, shifting forward thousands of years, is one of the challenges in the diversity, equity, inclusion space. Folks keep asking for data. How do you quantify in a way that is scientific? Numbers and that kind of thing. What people feel when they're marginalized. For Singleton, society's primary intellectual values are bound up with this marginalization. So he is dismissing linear thinking and rationality and cause and effect. Isn't that just gaslighting parents? Isn't that just trying to convince us that what we know to be true rationally is not true? And why are these people trying to teach this? I mean, I think the simplest explanation is that it's just a grift, that this anti-racism and anti-fragility training, it's a scam. And these individuals have convinced the world that there's there's their way of doing things and you got to pay them for it. That's a con. Now, one of the big supporters of this training is the teachers unions. Now, here we have to go on a, a bit of a digression because we have to distinguish between teachers' unions and the teachers that they represent. Individual teachers have the job of educating children and caring for them, providing a safe environment for them to learn in. Some teachers are good at this job. Some are bad at this job. The teachers' unions are negotiating entities that try to get the most perks and compensation for teachers in exchange for the least amount of work. They want as much money and time off and healthcare benefits and job security as they can get. And they want to provide the least number of hours and days of work. It's a negotiation. But we have to understand that that is the motivation of the unions. And we have to examine everything that they say and do through that lens. When the unions advocate for a particular policy, they aren't doing it because it's best for the children. They're doing it because it's best For the union. We cannot trust that the teachers' unions are advocating on behalf of children. There's no reason for us to expect that they would do that. But somehow we have allowed unions to influence educational policy, and they are doing it to the detriment of the children that they're teaching. When teachers' unions object to charter schools, it's not because the schools are bad for children, it's because they're bad for unions. Because charter schools don't use unionized labor. Heck, that's probably why the charter schools are producing better outcomes. But it means taking children away from public schools, and that's where the unions dominate. When COVID forced school closures, at most the schools needed to be closed for one to two months, but I'm not convinced they needed to be closed at all. Most private schools, and and in some jurisdictions, The public schools returned to in-person learning in September or October of 2020. But in the states and the municipalities where the teachers unions have more power, they avoided going back to school for the entire damn school year. But this was in spite of no clear evidence that school closures were a useful public health intervention. There's no, there's no evidence that these closures prevented the spread of COVID. It was, it's not like COVID was a, a grave risk to children. The teachers unions advocated for this. They insisted on it because they didn't want to commute to work. Because they didn't want to have to teach. Because they wanted to stay home. They wanted the most amount of perks in exchange for the least amount of work. But it's the job of our elected officials to be on the other side of that negotiation. To push back against that rather than to defer to it. To tell the unions that they're not being reasonable. And even if they are being unreasonable, we don't care. They have to come to work. The children need school. How come our elected officials refused to do that job? How come they outsourced creating educational policy to teachers unions? I'll tell you why, because they got caught up in the same anti-racism, don't measure, no objectivity discussion that the teachers did. The teachers unions advocated for this type of training, for this type of nonsense, because this type of training says that measurement is bad, that quantification of performance is bad. So of course the union wants that. The entire premise of this anti-racism training is that we cannot measure and we cannot evaluate. And that's one of the things that the teachers unions want. They want us to avoid having uh, uh, teachers measured and evaluated. And so here is someone they can ally with, who's going to say that a score of a hundred is no different or better than a score of 70. And so if they're equivalent, then you can't tell a good teacher from a bad teacher. If we reject objective reality, we can't evaluate teachers and so this line of thinking that's based on like tests are racist and measurement is racist and objectivity and facts are racist it allows for anyone to make up anything that's fun and this type of training for the teachers has dovetailed nicely with the recent focus on teaching critical race theory in schools now no one can seem to define what crt is i'll tell you what it's not CRT is not teaching kids that they, there were racist people in America and racist events in the United States. That's just teaching them history. CRT is not teaching kids that black people were treated horribly and enslaved for a very long time. That's just history. CRT is not teaching children that there are entire neighborhoods created by racist policies such as redlining That is just teaching kids history. So anyone who says that that's what CRT is, they're lying to you. CRT is teaching kids that objective reality is not a thing. And parents are sick of this. They've been protesting against this gaslighting for much of the past two years. Parents were were aware that the schools that were closed for an entire year didn't need to be. Now, in the process, the parents who have pushed back against this have somehow been been grouped together with like the the MAGA crowd and the anti-mask and anti-vax crowd. They're different things. They've been branded as domestic terrorists and had the attorney general turn the FBI on them. But the gubernatorial election in Virginia last week, it shows that parents are demanding that politicians get involved, that they fix this. They're demanding that the politicians speak up on their behalf and do their damn jobs. You know, the turning point in in the Virginia campaign came during a debate. And when asked a question about legislation around school curricula, the Democratic candidate, Terry McAuliffe, if I pronounce that right, I don't know. He said, I'm not going to let parents come into schools and actually take books out and make their own decision. I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. Okay, fine. But then you do it. If you won't provide some sensible oversight, then the parents have to do it. And it shouldn't be their job. So how can we be surprised when the people vote these idiots out of office? The schools are essential to the strength of our nation. They must be strengthened. They must be protected It's one of the principal jobs of local government. And yet our leaders have abandoned that responsibility to the teachers unions and and to the morons like Kendi and D'Angelo and Singleton. Teachers unions are one of the most dangerous forces in the United States. And they cannot be given so much power over the schools. The Democrats are going to keep losing elections as they buddy up with these grifters and as long as they negoc- as long as they neglect their responsibility to oversee and strengthen the schools they're going to keep on losing you know higher education has many problems as well there are countless college degrees that are worthless and they're very expensive we've talked about how colleges have been larded up with countless administrators and and how these administrators have created jobs and responsibilities for themselves by focusing on the same kind of nonsense that the grade schools have embraced people are encouraged to take out student loans to pay for ever more expensive college degrees but in the process they often fail to develop the human capital that's necessary to pay off those loans. And meanwhile, the the colleges have just gone wild with this stuff. They're canceling and firing professors. And Barry Weiss, who I only agree with some of the time, is sick of it. So are the Weinstein brothers and all the other usual suspects. And this week, they announced that they are launching the University of Austin. It's described as, quote, a new college dedicated to freedom of inquiry that rejects illiberalism found at most of America's higher education facilities. I'm not really sure what that means. I mean, it it sounds to me like they're starting a college based on some sort of libertarian or conservative principles where they're going to teach kids Atlas Shrugged as like their foundational text. And it's not a bad idea. I mean, there's plenty of room for more competition and for new ideas in creating schools. Institutional restoration is as much about creating new institutions as it is about reviving old ones. But there's a lot that's unclear about the entire thing. Are they going to have a campus? Will they offer degrees, undergraduate programs, graduate programs? What are the requirements to get in? Is there an admissions criteria? What about to become a professor? What will it cost? Will they have sports teams? I sort of feel like this this place is going to be defined by what it is not. Like it's not leftist and woke gender studies professors as much as by what it actually is. Are they going to be hiring the professors who have been fired and canceled elsewhere where these, these professors just have free reign to say stuff that offends people? Right? Is this gonna be a bunch of professors who who dropped the N-word somewhere else and claimed it was for like sociological or educational reasons and now they're just gonna to get to, to run wild? Or is it gonna be like the Brett Weinstein types giving seminars on what the media is hiding about Ivermectin or some other crazy shit like that? And why are they doing this in Austin? Right? Austin is like the the blue haired unicycle riding crowd right? So what happens when those people show up in protest? What happens when Antifa shows up? You better believe Antifa is going to be very active here. So the school is going to need a pretty major security presence, I would think. And and how much are students and professors just going to dare the school to cancel them? Because the stuff that you get canceled for at other schools, it won't work here. Right here, it feels like they're going to be encouraged to commit microaggressions. So where is the line gonna be? Is it just gonna be professors, you know, judging students based on shape of skull stuff or some other weird stuff? You know, like what if you what if you choose your team project that way? Is that gonna get you in trouble? Or or more seriously, are the economics classes going to be very right wing? Are they gonna churn out a bunch of inflation hawks? What other subjects are they going to teach? This feels to me like a performance project that's probably going to have a handful of students who go there just to make a point, but they'll all be like the weird kids who were super active in their hometown libertarian club and they wear fedoras and they all look like active shooters. So More to come on this. It feels like it's very early innings, but I'm curious. It's time for a quick word from our sponsor. I love podcasts. You love podcasts. Osama Bin Laden loved podcasts, I think. He was a big true crime buff. And I published the Lee show using Anchor. I think it's a great service. I tested out a number of options. This was clearly the best. They have great sound quality. It's the same company. Anchor is made by the same company that created the weapons that cause Havana syndrome. How cool is that? And it's owned by Spotify as part of their quest to destroy Neil Young. Anchor provides the tools that let you record and edit from your phone, from your computer. I record my audio. I upload it and distribute it to all the major podcasting platforms. It's very easy. They'll get you on Spotify. They'll get you on Apple Podcasts, all the leading players. And you can make big bucks. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm. To get started, you know, on the podcast, I've talked about various TV shows that I liked or disliked. And the feedback to this has been interesting because it seems to be something that's pretty universal amongst listeners of the show. Like if I bring up Squid Games or The White Lotus, it seems like most of my listeners have watched these shows. They have opinions on them, they enjoy discussing them. It's somehow acceptable in some like upper middle class socioeconomic circles to talk about this stuff. Now, I was raised without video games. My parents didn't let me have them. I never played them. I didn't care about them. It just doesn't appeal to me. But many people do. Many people enjoy video games. Try this experiment, though. In your next work meeting, Instead of mentioning how much you loved squid games, try bringing up video games. The next time you take a client out for dinner, try discussing Call of Duty with them or or Doom or, or I don't know, whatever video games people play now. See how long you keep that job for. People will avert their eyes because they will think you are a freak. Because video games are perceived that they're for moronic kids who are unoccupied and not active or don't have have more interesting things to do. Video games are for the dumb, dumb suburban youths whose parents don't give them enough extracurricular activities, right? The smart kids are out on on sports teams and the idiots are inside playing video games and and planning to shoot up their school or something. It would be weird to discuss these in a social context as an adult, unless you're at like Comic-Con or some other place with like adult virgins who don't watch that often. Netflix really isn't that different. Like when you binge watch Narcos or Big Mouth, it's not like your brain is doing anything more useful. It's the same shit. It's just as mind rotting as the video games, but somehow the TV shows are socially acceptable to discuss in polite company. And the video games are perceived as lower class. And I don't, I don't know why that is. Now I get that some of the TV shows have good writing, but is that, is that how you're signaling that you're intelligent by telling people like, oh man, I love The Wire or I love Breaking Bad. Is that, is that like a thing that we do? Haven't all of these shows, even the best written ones, haven't they all become so middle brow that you really aren't signaling anything positive at all? And I mean, it doesn't mean that these These shows aren't fun to watch or entertaining. I mean, I still watch them. I watch stuff that's way less classy. I subscribe to the new Fox streaming service just so I can see the new episodes of Cops. Season 33, it's out. Remember after George Floyd died and they were like, oh no, we can't show Cops on the air anymore and they pulled it? Which, I don't know, was that the worst part of George Floyd dying? It could be. But thankfully it's back. Anyways, I just don't quite understand this and how how one is so socially acceptable and yet video games are not because I think it's the same shit. I think Netflix is just doo-doo and and it's the same stuff. Thank you for listening. If you're not already a paid subscriber, please become one. It's easy. Just click on the listener support link in the show notes for the podcast or go to leebrestler.substack.com. Thank you in advance. Remember, you can find me on Instagram, on Twitter, I truly appreciate your support. I welcome your feedback and I will be back with more soon.